All right. Good morning. Thanks for responding. It's good. It's good. I uh, I used to love daylight savings time, like especially the fall one, the fall back. Um, right, that extra hour of sleep was a beautiful and glorious thing. And now I have a two-year-old, and now all it means is adjusting sleep schedule. So it's kind of awful. So for you, those of you who have kids. Uh, in that age category, I, I feel your pain. Those of you who are in it or out of it just now, you are so lucky. <laughs> right? It's good. So this morning we're going to continue our, our journey through some of Jesus' parables. And he has, there's, there's quite a few of the parables. And I, it was tricky uh, choosing four really to look at. Um, and I'll tell you, I picked four not with an agenda. Okay? I was just... I. Th- just felt like these would be fun. So we just picked them randomly and having really no uh, for sure idea where we would go with that. And I, as I was starting to look at this parable of the unforgiving servant, a sense of dread came over me uh, about preaching it. Because it is probably one of the most forceful expressions of how Christians are to live. All right? Uh, following Jesus means that rather than insisting on our rights, we should be people who are continually dispensing mercy and forgiveness and mirroring God's own character in our treatment of people. And there's no way to soften how the parable teaches us this. All right? So if this morning you're like, that was intense. Like, he's a guest. He should probably lighten up a bit. All right? I am sorry. Uh, but... It's in the text. It's in the word that we've been given. And so we're going to dive in. And uh, I hope that at the end of this, that the words of Jesus convict you like they've been convicting me because I'd like some company. Okay? So these aren't anything we... This morning, this is a parable that is a parable about forgiveness and a parable about mercy, but it is a parable about judgment. And that's not something we often like talked about. So, sorry. Let's just, let's just start off by reading it together. And we're going to start off just a little bit before the parable because context. And we'll get to that. So we're rereading Matthew 18. We'll starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times. 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he and his wife and children, all that he had was to be sold to repay the debt. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. 
but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that, all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how the heaven, my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. So this parable doesn't go into all the detail of the circumstances, right? And unlike the parable of the sower that we looked at last week, it doesn't give us an interpretation. But it, we are given this context, right? Ever important when we're reading scriptures. Um, and the, the context of this gives us a lot of direction. In Matthew 18, it's probably one of my favorite go-to because it's a challenging, challenging um, uh, chapter on how we should live. But specifically, we look at, at the conversation with, that he has with Peter. Peter is asking him, how many times shall I forgive? And you get this sense that Peter is like, up to seven? Aren't I good? Like, I am reaching out. Uh, I'm, I'm pushing the boundaries here. Because like in, in tradition, they would probably, there, there's a lot of scholars who think that three was probably a common number. And in the context of Matthew, you see that Jesus alludes to like three attempts at reconciliation. So when Peter comes at, at this and he's saying seven, he's reaching. He's saying like, yeah, I'm starting, to, I'm starting to pick up, Jesus, what you're laying down, that we're supposed to go further than we think we should go, right? And so he says seven. And Jesus pushes back and is like, no, 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 77, which isn't a number that is important. It isn't that we need to keep track of 77. He's saying that, because in the text, it's not clear if he's saying 77 or 70 times seven, uh, it, it, how it translates. It gets a little little tricky from the Greek. But the point of what Jesus is saying is that, no, 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 it's, it's infinite. It's just like, it's a number that you shouldn't be keeping track of. So don't, don't make a list. And he says this, and he says this, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like. And just like, pro tip when you're reading scripture, whenever you see therefore, always read the passage a little bit before, right? Because it's building. And so the therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, this is a launching, a parable that Jesus is launching into out of this question of forgiveness, Okay. And the parable begins by setting up this, the law is kind of the first element in it, okay? And the king, the king is representative of the law. He, he's a bookkeeper king. He's a, a law keeper and, and a law upholder. And he, the king is actually, this is a, a fun and interesting thought. So the king is totally within his rights, to call that servant to account. There is a debt. There is money owed, and the king is, if he's following his own law, is actually expected to call this debt when it's due. 
He's doing what is required of him. And so this bookkeeper of king, when, when the servant who owes him this astronomical sum, and, and make no mistake, 10,000 bags of gold, I think that would be impressive today uh, in and of itself. But if you're speaking in modern terms, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars. Okay, so this is no poultry little sum. It's not a small figure. It's an impossible figure for us to repay. Most of us, if we were told you, were, you owe $10 million, would, I, if not all of us, would probably have a little bit of a, a heart attack, right? Like we'd, we'd skip, a, skip a beat. So he's, he's come up and he's given this impossible figure that he has to repay. And the bookkeeper king at this moment says to him that it's due. And if you can't pay it, well, then I'll get what I can and I'll sell you and I'll sell your wife and your children and everything you own in order to get at least a little bit back. It makes sense. And this, isn't a com- this wasn't a common practice in Israel for uh, the kings of Israel to perform, but it also wasn't unheard of in the, uh, in the Roman world, right? And in response to this, to the, his time being up and the, the servant uh, response to the king, he falls on his knees and he begs for more time and he promises that he'll pay everything back. And this, this bookkeeper, this law-abiding, law-upholding king becomes a compassionate king. He takes pity on the servant. And the NIV, sometimes when you, you study the text, you realize that the different translations, uh, they all fall a bit short. And so the NIV doesn't include this word compassion. But if you go back to the Greek, it's, it's actually there. If you look at many other English translations, it's there. So if you don't ever want to go back to the Greek, compare translations, it's a fun little, fun little thing to do. But this, this idea of compassion is there. And this king has compassion. He's moved with compassion. And he cancels the debt of the servant, let him, him go. He actually ignores the offer of the servant, right? Because the servant says, give me more time, I'll pay it back, I'll pay it back. He doesn't give him more time. Instead, he forgives him. He says, the debt is canceled. And moved by compassion for entirely his own reasons, the king lets the servant go free of debt. The king knew that the servant had no chance of repaying this debt. It's an astronomical, unsurmountable sum impossible for him to pay back. And he wasn't moved by the promise of time, and he wasn't moved by the promise that there would be repayment if he just had more time. He wasn't moved by empty promises. The king, for his own reasons, is filled with compassion and lays down his rights in that moment, lays down what is owed to him, lays down the bookkeeper, law, upholding king and instead offers forgiveness. In other words, when you look at this, the king actually dies to himself, dies to his, what is expected of him, dies to the character that this servant thought the king had and wiped away the debt, forgiving, forgetting it ever existed. And the servant 
misses this entirely, right? He misses the example that is offered to him. He misses the invitation to be someone who forgives. He misses the invitation to die to himself. And instead, he insists on being a bookkeeper and a law keeper himself. He goes out and he finds a fellow servant, someone who owes him, what in comparison is a fairly pitiful sum. And he exudes his rights upon that person because it was owed. And ultimately, he imprisons his fellow servant. And this is an awesome, this is a total side note, but this is a great opportunity. Sometimes we want to make parables into equations and find every little bit to mean something. This is an awesome time. This other servant doesn't come in again. At the end of the parable, he's still in prison. I don't think we're supposed to read into that. Right? It's one of those things that it's an element that Jesus uses. He's telling a story. These aren't equations. These aren't things that work out into perfect little beautiful theologies for us to, to unpack. So anyways, total side note. But this man, he has this, this missed opportunity, right? To offer forgiveness in light of his own forgiveness. And the reaction of the servants, the other servants who see the, this happen, right? This is what most of us feel when we read this, Right? We're shocked. We're outraged that someone would behave so. How could someone be forgiven that much and then just go out like right away and find a fellow servant and try to give him the shakedown? It's, it's shock. To see someone behave so poorly, to see someone forgiven and receive so much compassion and then go, treat out, and go out and treat someone else so poorly. When the other forgiving servant treated his fellow servant this way, he was going against what Jesus summarizes as all the law and prophets. Right? You read it in Matthew 7. So, everything do to, so in everything, do unto others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and prophets. We often like to gloss over, especially in our, in our Protestant tradition, that there's action required in this summation. The do unto others, it's an action. It requires something of us. Some people, we, t- we talk in terms of love. Some people talk in terms of obedience, and both work. To, be- to obey Jesus is to love others, and to love others is obedience to Jesus. And this love and this obedience is based on God's prior action. It's not something that we, we do in order to earn the forgiveness of God, to earn the love of God. His love is there. His forgiveness is there for us, and we're called to respond to it. Right? First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us, Loves, loved us. And some might push back on this. If you're, if you're thinking about this, you might be feeling like we're embracing kind of a works element. That you're saying that there's something I need to do. Because in our tradition, we're often just taught that it's something we just need to receive. But unfortunately, I really think that in, in, the, in the Protestant church, we have, we have this exaggerated fear 
of, of, of works. You know, we're still, we're still kind of reacting to the misuse and abuse that was propagated by the Catholic Church in the years leading up to the Reformation. We're still, because the reality is it was, is there was a, you can do these things and the, out of these things you will gain salvation. Which is totally wrong. 100%. But the reality is, is we go to a point where we actually require nothing of ourselves or other people who claim to follow Jesus. And we say, you just have to exist. And I think the reaction of, of the church to, to move, it, it's fair at the time, but the pendulum has to settle out on this conversation. As one scholar put it, if only there was an equal fear of inactiveness in the church. Right? We have this massive fear of works, but only if we had the same fear of inactiveness. I, James puts it beautifully, right? But some of you will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. There has to be a response. There has to be a living differently. There has to be love for our neighbor. There has to be forgiveness for those in our lives. And I think it's interesting that this is actually often how people view the church, you know? like the servants viewing the scene that played out before them. So I think many people look on the church in the same way, with outrage. Because we often play the role of accuser. We often play the bookkeeping, law-abiding role within society. We point the finger and blame and demand that our rights, our privilege, our position should come first. We say we're forgiven, but we refuse to forgive. We insist on belief, but then we don't follow it up with our actions. And isn't that the important point in all this? The king and the unforgiving servant were each creditors with lawful rights. And each one was perfectly within their rights to demand payment. But the king offers a new way. And instead of insisting on rights and authority, he lays them down and instead offers forgiveness. Jesus concludes this parable with might feel like shocking and heavy words, right? This is how my Father in heaven will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus makes it clear that the treatment of others is the basis on which we will be judged. If we refuse to forgive and insist on binding others in debt and sin and insist, and debt and sin, and insist on us being correct, so too will we be bound, our sin be bound to us. For how we treat others is how we will be treated. 
But thankfully, we serve a God who doesn't insist on his pound of flesh, right? He doesn't insist upon us living up to the law and expectation we've placed on ourselves. He offers another way. But in that another way, he does insist on the dignity of his mercy and his grace. If we are extended mercy, aren't we then to extend mercy to others? If we receive and rely upon the grace and forgiveness of God, shouldn't we then extend that grace and forgiveness to others? It shouldn't be a surprise to us that where forgiveness is not extended, where love is not extended, people will be held accountable. Yet if we're willing to forgive as we have been forgiven, then there is no sin. There is no debt. There's no trespasses. There's nothing in the way. I think that in heaven, there will only be forgiven sinners. But in hell too, there will only be forgiven sinners. The forgiveness of Jesus is not limited, right? He forgives the sinful, the badness, the evil, and even the worst of us, and he does it without limit and without discretion. And he never takes that forgiveness back. But the difference between heaven and hell is that in heaven, the forgiveness is accepted and passed on. While in hell, it's rejected and it's blocked. In heaven, the death of the king is accepted and becomes the entryway to new life. In hell, the old way of bookkeeping is insisted upon and becomes forever the pointless torture that it ever was. When we read this parable, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that the only one unpardonable sin is to, is to withhold pardon from others. The only thing that, that can keep us out of the joy of the resurrection is to join the unforgiving servant and refuse to die to ourselves. Heaven and hell, they're, they're this future thing for us, but they're also a present reality. And to live into heaven is to die to ourselves, to follow Jesus to the cross, to forgive as we are forgiven, and to live in that joy of heaven now in this place. And I think that's the call of Jesus on us in this moment, is to be people of forgiveness, to live into that heaven now and invite others into that now with us here. Let's just pray. Lord God, our, our Heavenly Father, we've sinned against you and against each other. In our thoughts and our words and our deeds and what we have left undone but you've also forgiven us. And you've shown us this forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. 
You've turned our sin into forgiveness. Help us to remember this. Help us to live into this forgiveness, to show your forgiveness and love to others around us. Help us to be a church that dies to ourselves, that is willingly, that willingly lays down our rights for the sake of others. And give us strength to be who you have called us to be. To be people who live in your presence, in your kingdom, in heaven now. To you be all glory and praise. Amen.